So my name is Trevor Miller. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horror, but it's an honor to be with you this morning. Who has survived the first week of school this week? Any parents in the room? That's a very exhausted clapping and, and excitement. Any children in the room? You survived the first week? Yes. All right, good. Well, it's exciting to be with you this morning. I mean, people showed up for church today. Y'all ready for this? Good. We are starting a new sermon series called Image Bearers, and I would argue this particular sermon series is the perfect one to begin our fall season. As typically people kind of get back in the routine, as fall starts, as school starts, as college football starts next week, can I get an amen? (laughs) That was a really manly amen right there. As all this kind of newness begins, again, this is an opportunity for every single one of us to reevaluate once again, what kind of image do we portray in the world that we live in? What kind of image are we falling under? And as we fall under that image, we are reflecting to the world around us. And so this morning, my prayer and my hope would be all of us would have open hearts, open minds to hear from God's word today, that we'd allow him to teach us something new and perhaps start this fall in a new and a different kind of way. So this past week was my wife's birthday. And so we celebrated multiple times. We're celebrating again today. It's birthday week, actually. So in my house, the queen gets the whole week. We're celebrating all week long. So today we'll do it again. And she and I got away on Thursday night for a dinner, just the two of us, which is always nice. And so we went to dinner and we were spending time. And it was wonderful. And what always happens at a dinner between just Trevor and Jenna is typically someone will, will stop the conversation and say, hey, look right over there. You see that guy? Like, who's he look like? Anybody else do this when you go to dinner with your spouse? Who's that guy look like? And then always the other person will be like, oh, it looks like, uh, you know, uh, Robin Williams. Oh, yeah, me too. I thought the same thing. Or, hey, see that guy over there? Like, who's he look like? Oh, uh, Uncle Rico. Yes, Uncle Rico. That's Uncle Rico. And eventually it kind of devolves into somebody being like, yeah, Chris Kattan, Dwayne Johnson had a baby. That's that guy right over there, which is an ugly baby. But that's kind of how it typically goes for us. Every single time, at some point in time, somebody's seeing somebody else who looks like somebody else. And we're mentioning it to one another. And it's a fun thing to be like, oh, yeah. We're like, I don't know about that one. And so I know probably across the room, some of y'all have these kind of experiences too. You know somebody, you're like, that's a guy's a dead ringer. I would know it anywhere. It looks just like this other person. Not that person exactly, but you know, when I see them, it reminds me of this person. And so I've been on staff almost 17 years now, and there's one person on staff that has always reminded me of somebody else. So I'm gonna share this doppelganger with you and see if you concur with me, okay? So here's, here's the first picture. This is Tom Izzo, college basketball coach. Oh yeah, I heard it. See, I knew, I knew this was either going to fall flat and people would be like, what are you talking about? Or I get the grunt like y'all just gave, like I know exactly. Let's go ahead and show the next picture. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Jeff Kersey is Tom Izzo. It's a doppelganger, right? You see people and you look at them, you're like, it's not, it's not this person, but it looks so much like this person. I was Googling this week, preparing for this message, and some scientists believe that there are up to six doppelgangers that every person has worldwide. You ever been somewhere and you walked up and you saw somebody like, oh my God, I'm looking in a mirror right now. Like, who, what's going on? Like, all of us probably have had experiences like this at some point in time or another. And, and essentially what it is, is an image bearer. And an image bearer very simply is this. It is one who closely resembles another in one or more ways. So if you're an image bearer of someone else, then someone might look at you and it might remind them of that person. Or they might look at that person and it might remind them of you. Doppelganger, image bearer. It may have to do with the nose or the shape of the smile, the laugh, the sense of humor, the kind of things that you like, eyes, various other similarities. And though these image bearers may not be that person exactly, it causes you to think about or remember or to consider the one they resemble. 
You know, one of the most fundamental themes in Scripture that runs from Genesis to Revelation, from the very beginning to the end, is this concept that's very closely related to this. In the Latin, it's called Imago Dei. And Imago Dei literally means this. It means uh, the image of God. The image of God. And so from beginning to end, there's this concept. It begins in Genesis chapter 1 as the author writes at the very beginning. And the Bible says this, that when God created human beings, after all of his creation, he makes them in his likeness, in his image. Which means me, you, we were created to be image bearers of God. The original intention is that we would so mirror our creator, so reflect our creator, that when people looked at us, they would be reminded, they would think about, they would consider the one who made us. And because God is the designer and the creator, that means that he's in charge from eternity past to eternity future. He's created all things. Therefore, in him we find our ruler, authority, and our king. And so all of us, we hold within us this incredible resemblance to the one who's created us. And he chose to partner with humankind in, in spreading his rule and his reign, his image all across the earth. That was the original intention. And this connection that's taken place between us and God is not so much having to do with physical features or certain personality traits or something like that. It actually goes much deeper, much further between what is shared between humanity and divinity. Originally, we had the attributes of God within us, and it pointed to God because it looked like God. Things like this, holiness, love, truth, righteousness, mercy, creativity, beauty. And every human being that has ever been created has instilled these areas that remind people, that are reflections of God himself. We are all a part of the Imago Dei. That was the original intention for all of us. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, to really understand this Imago Dei concept, this image of God concept, you have to think about it in terms of a tilted mirror. Anybody else, when you go get a haircut, you get a little bit nervous? Not because I distrust the barber or the hairstylist, because clearly I have no idea how to cut hair myself, and so I go and have someone do it that I trust. But whenever the scissors and the shears make it to the back of the head, I always get a little nervous, because I can't see it. So as it's going on, I'm just kind of thinking, I have a weird, you know, uh, cowlick back there. I got like four. I don't know how this is going and what's going to possibly happen. And it wouldn't help if I saw it anyway, because again, I have no idea how to cut, cut, cut hair. But it always makes me a little bit nervous until the very end. My favorite part of any kind of haircut is when they finally hand you this mirror, right? They put it in front of you and they spin your chair around. And you're like, there it is. Perfectly cut lines, right? And it's a tilted mirror. What the tilted mirror does is it allows you to see things that otherwise would not be seen. So the whole intention of creation is that all that God has made, human beings, creation itself, all that he has given to us to reveal himself to us is meant to be a tilted mirror that points us to him to show us what he truly looks like. You see, the creator God desires for his authority, his rule, and his reign to spread across the entire earth, and he's chosen to do it through you and through me, so no pressure. But your life really matters. The things that you do really matter. The way you treat people, the way you spend your time, the things that you value, the things you prioritize, it actually matters because you're a part of the Imago Dei. You're a part of the image of God. We are tilted mirrors. And God's intention was always for rather than us looking at ourselves 
and admiring ourselves, instead tilting that mirror enough to be able to see him and then to reflect, to become avenues, copies, echoes that others might perceive who God is by looking at and spending time with us. So as God pours into our lives, holiness, love, truth, righteousness, mercy, creativity, beauty, we in turn might reflect that to the world around us and show the world around us what otherwise may not be seen. That's the point. That was the goal. When we do this and we do it well, then we serve as image bearers of the king. See, Paul, one of the main writers in the New Testament, picks up on this concept, this idea, as he writes the book of Romans. He's writing to the early church who lived in a culture that was far from God in many different, um, many different ways, different avenues. And it's not that far, actually, from our culture today. Paul writes to those living in Rome, and he's speaking to them about what it looks like to live as image bearers of God. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20 through 21. He begins in the very beginning in Genesis. He reminds all of his readers about this fact. Here's what he says. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, his kingship have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are what? Without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So Paul says, at creation, God's intention is that his invisible qualities would be shown to the world around. And the way he would do this is through his creation. It would be a tilted mirror to show the world around what he looks like. But the problem is, it didn't stay like that. Paul says in Genesis 1, what God is talking about through creation is sky, land, mountains, valleys, eagles, elephants, man, woman. All of this was created in order for his invisible qualities to be evident to the world around him. God revealed himself in many ways through creation, through the word of God, and ultimately through the person of Jesus Christ. It was all meant to be tilted mirrors, showing the world what otherwise could not be seen. And rather than us just admiring creation, we might admire the creator himself. Rather than us just reading the Bible, we might let the Bible read us and show us something about who God is. It was all meant to be tilted mirrors. So this fall, as the leaves begin to change, and you see the beauty of that, as you hold a newborn child, and we swim in the ocean, we study mathematics and astronomy, we taste good food, the original intention is that all of these things might point us to a creator who's divine, who's in charge, who is king and authority over all. His handiwork, people, is meant to leave us without any excuse to not look at it and say there must be something beyond this. We have no alibi for why we don't fall under the rule and reign, the leadership and authority of God. That was the original intention. Now the Bible tells us something takes place after God creates all that he has made. And what happens is humankind decided no longer will we live by God's ways in his order of life. Instead, we'll do it all our own way. And so instead, we decided to rebel against the authority of God. And along and along our history past, leading up until today, as we have found ourselves far from God, Paul says, with foolish hearts darkened by sin. And so these tilted mirrors became shattered and broken. And it was very difficult to see God 
clearly anymore. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 22 to 25, that he goes on to explain further. He says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So Paul says, here's where this whole thing went wrong. The intention is that our lives would be an image that would show what God is like, but instead, because of our darkened hearts through sin, we decided to hand over the image of God for lesser images. Paul says images that were made instead to reflect the creator, to reflect the creation, made in human likeness and reptiles and birds and these kinds of things. Now to us, this might sound very odd. Like we don't probably have many statues at our house that we would worship or bow down to or see as authority that's shaped like some kind of creature or animal. That's not very common for us. But in the ancient Near East, to understand what Paul is talking about here in terms of the Imago Dei and these lesser images, we have to understand the culture that he's writing to in Rome. You see, for the early church living in Rome, this was a regular practice. Rome, the entire Roman world, was riddled with all kinds of images and icons and statues and idols to various gods of all kinds. So you had the god of Jupiter, who was the god of weather, Mars, the god of war and agriculture, Venus, the god of beauty and love, Neptune, the god of the sea. And each one of these gods were represented uh, in statues by different animals or plants. Like Jupiter was symbolized by eagles, Mars, a wolf, Venus, a rose, Neptune, horses. And the most prolific form of worship in the Roman world at that point in time, as Paul is writing, is something called the Roman imperial cult. You see, the world had gotten to the point where they were looking for any other kind of God to give authority to, anything else to bow to, anything else to give our attention to. Sound familiar? And in Rome, it looked like all of these things. But probably the most damaging of all was the Roman imperial cult, where Rome, the emperor, Caesar, believed himself to be God and divine. They would worship him. They would say things like Caesar was Lord of Lord and King of Kings. They would assign him sovereign authority. They called him the Son of God. His birthday was something that was regarded as good news. Does this all sound familiar? See, the New Testament writers pick up on these things that are going on in Rome and the kind of worship that was taking place. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, these are the words they use for him. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the Son of God. His birth is good news to all people. It's subversive in nature. It's taking the authority that was in place and recognizing there's a new authority that is here and it supersedes this one. So what Caesar would do to make sure that his power extended all throughout his kingdom, he would have statues erected everywhere, cities all over his kingdom. He would stamp images on himself on coins that would circulate throughout the Roman Empire to make sure and maintain his authority. It was a reminder on who was in charge. When I was in college, um, I had moved from Indiana to South Carolina. I had stopped playing college football and came to CIU. Didn't have any sports team at that point in time. Ripped now they do, and I wasn't there for it. But I was there my freshman year and uh, my sophomore year. And so I started coaching at Ben Lippin. It was on the same campus, and it was still football, so that felt good. And within a year or so, I was invited to go on a mission trip to Italy to teach American football in Italy and share the gospel for 10 days. I was like, yes, I will totally do that. 
So I wasn't playing football anymore, but I had the chance to play for 10 days in a foreign country. I was like, sign me up. And so I did. So I went to Italy for 10 days with some of my best friends. It was one of the best 10 days of my life. And we played football and practiced football in some of the strangest places ever in Rome, like soccer fields and then like grassy areas and these sleepy mountain towns around Rome. It was, it was an amazing experience. And at the very end of the week, we ended up playing a game then against some of these European uh, football players, uh, kind of an exhibition game sort of, in this big stadium called the Stadium of Marbles. And if you've ever been to Rome, it's a beautiful stadium kind of in the middle of Rome. In fact, it was one of the places that the 1960 Summer Olympics was held is in that stadium. It was built in the 1930s under the leadership of Benito Mussolini. And the reason he built it was because they surrounded the entire stadium with 12 foot tall, 60 of them, statues carved out of marble, thus called the Stadium of Marbles. So you have 12 foot high, 60 of them, statues of athletes at that point in time in the 30s all around the stadium. And the reason was they wanted to make sure they could establish and keep in place the authority and the leadership of the fascist regime at that point in time. And one of the ways to do so was to carve these athletes out of stone. I mean, muscular and huge and massive. So we took pictures after the game in front of these statues. An amazing experience. And I, I thought to myself, you know, like even preparing for this message, after seeing that, I wonder what it would have been like as the early church walking around, living in Rome, and seeing statues just like this all over the city, all over the Roman Empire, images, icons of these false gods, and the emperor himself, always as a reminder to anyone who lived in Rome, if you're thinking about stepping out of line, don't you do it. It's a reminder of who's in charge. It's a reminder of whose authority is in place. It's the emperor and it's Caesar and nobody else. You fall under this. Which is why the early church was such a massive, subversive movement taking place at that point in time. Because they believed there was a different king who was in charge. So the Bible says that as they began to degrade from sin after the very beginning of creation, these images that were meant to point to God now were focused on other images that they exchanged him for. The Bible says that God then gave them over to their selfish desires, gave them over to their sexual perversion and other things that were going on in Rome rampantly. The early church was very much against. And so they said God gave them over to these things. Here's the picture that the author is kind of writing. If you've ever walked a dog, like a, a, a big, strong dog before down a sidewalk, and suddenly there's a squirrel on the other side of the street, what's that dog going to do? I mean, go to the squirrel right now. And you grab him, and you're trying to hold him, and he's going, trying to go, and there's cars going on the street between there. And then eventually you let him go. He wants that squirrel so bad, he runs into traffic, endangers himself. This is the picture that Paul's writing. What happened was we, we exchanged the image of God, the authority of God within our life, and we picked lesser images, lesser gods, and we, we chose to go after those things instead. And God said he turned them over to their selfish desires so they could be destroyed. No. No. The reason he did it was because of grace. The reason he gave them over is they might come to find this is too dangerous. This is not really what I want. This is not the authority I want to be under. But instead, I want to be under the authority of God, the one who loves me, cares for me, gave himself up for me. See, creation has been broken. It's been fractured. We've replaced the authority of God with other lesser gods. Because of our sinful hearts, living in darkness, as Paul describes, we have chosen other gods like popularity, success, money, recreation, power, comfort, fear. They're not 12-foot-tall statues carved out of marble or stone, or would, but instead they are gods all the same. 
that we still bow down to, we still sacrifice to, that we still serve over, over God himself. We've given up the image of God for lesser images. In fact, one of the reasons that the early church was so against icons within the church, any kind of picture of who God was in the church, because the backdrop of what was going on, they believed that people did not look, need to look to any other kind of image of God because God had already given an image of himself in creation. He'd already made himself known. And if creation could be redeemed, if it could be restored, if it could be brought back from the destruction that took place because of sin, then once again it could properly function as tilted mirrors, pointing back to who God is, who God is and showing the world what otherwise could not be seen. So the story of the Bible is a God who moved by compassion and love went to great lengths to restore his image in the world again. See, God's intention was always to partner with humankind to spread his authority across the earth. He never gave up on that promise. He never gave up on that commitment. So God instead came, sent a man named Jesus in the flesh, in the incarnation, a human himself, to partner once again to restore the image. John the Baptist writes, or is written about in the Gospels, the first four books in the New Testament, and John the Baptist speaks of this exact thing, the arrival of Jesus. And he's preaching in the Judean countryside. He has one message that he's saying over and over and over again. Think of the backdrop in which this falls. With Rome in charge at this point in time. John the Baptist is preaching. And here's what he says in Matthew 3, 2. This is his one message. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Here's John's message. Repent. Because there's a new king in town. And if there's a new king in town, the old king has to go. If there's a new authority, the old authority has to go. He says the proper response to the arrival of Jesus is this, repentance. It's not just feeling bad about something. It's the Greek word metanoio. It's deeper than that. It means a changing of our minds. A changing of the inner man. The image that you get is someone walking in one direction and because of repentance, they turn and they go the opposite direction. I don't just feel bad I got caught. I don't feel bad about the consequences. I feel bad because it's not living in the order and the line of the authority of God in which everything was placed under to begin with. So repentance is agreeing with God and falling back underneath that leadership. John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. Caesar is not king. All these lesser gods, Venus, Neptune, and so forth, they're not king. These statues that you bow down to, these images that you've traded God for, they're not king. Popularity is not king. Success is not king. Your bank account is not king. Fear is not king. Comfort is not king. Culture is not king. Jesus is king. So the proper response to Jesus as king is repentance and a turning back to him. You see, the first step of being an image bearer of God is recognizing first and foremost, who have you chosen to give your allegiance to? What image do you bear? Who are you serving? Now, most of us who come here for church, maybe on a Sunday morning, would probably recognize that God is king. We might even say God is king within our lives, but truthfully, I think a lot of us prefer God to be king by name, but not by authority. 
We like to say it, but we don't like to live it. We love to come on a Sunday morning and sing these wonderful songs with incredibly talented worship leaders, songs about submission to Jesus, the way of Jesus, but there's a big difference between Jesus being your Savior and Jesus being your Lord. And so for maybe some of us this morning, Jesus is our Savior. We've recognized that we can't restore ourselves. We can't save ourselves. Jesus' free gift of life, death, and resurrection from the cross is the opportunity for us to be saved from our own destruction, to turn back. That's given to us. But there's another step that needs to take place, and Jesus has to become Lord, the one who calls the shots to determine the way we live our life not just Savior, as Lord. One is about position before God. Salvation is about position. We're no longer enemies of God. We're friends of God. We're no longer far from him. We're close to him. We're connected to him. But different from Savior, Lord is about posture. I'm not living in defiance of God anymore, fighting against the truth of God anymore, but now I'm living under submission to God because I see him as authority. It's kind of like a toddler, Anybody in the room have a toddler? Isn't it fun? It's funner to have an infant. Here's why. Because they turn two and there's this switch that flips. And I wanted to say for a couple years, but it's like the rest of their life, everything changes as far as I can tell. And before they turn two, they're dependent upon you for everything. In your little kingdom of your household, you're the kings and queens. You feed them, you take care of them, you change the diapers, you turn the show on when we went the show. You do all the things for them, and and you're the king and and you're the queen. But then the twos hit, and it flips completely. A proverbial crown is placed upon their heads. And now these toddlers become kings. And, And all of a sudden now, any idea that you had is null and void. Any leadership and authority you used to have is now completely out the window. So it's like, oh, you want me to go to bed at eight o'clock? How about 11? Oh, you want me to eat that healthy vegetable? How about Mountain Dew and Twizzlers? You won't buy me that thing at the store? Watch this epic meltdown. (laughs) Authority means nothing anymore because all of a sudden now they've become the authority. And here's why parenting is so exhausting. It's essentially like parenting like ignorant experts on everything (laughs) because they know nothing and yet they know everything. And so all of your life experience, who cares? You're three. You probably know what's best to do. And my wife and I, sometimes we look at each other, we're like, what is going on? They don't listen to anything. They don't trust our judgment. They don't submit to our authority. They don't trust our love. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. This must be a little bit of what God feels like with us. Because we are ignorant experts who know nothing but we think we know everything. And I would argue in submission to Jesus, what that means is recognizing that, God, if you've created everything, you've given order to life, you've breathed it to life, you are king, you're over all things, maybe I should trust you for some stuff. Maybe I should listen to you a little bit and trust that you know what is best for my life. But the Bible says God gave them over to their lusts and their desires to go their own way, in order they might turn back. Parents, be honest. Have you ever, your child's like, I want to stay up all night. You're like, go for it. (laughs) Just one time. My son stayed up super late Saturday night or Friday night, and yesterday he was like, I feel horrible. I'm like, I know. That's why we have a bedtime. 
And your kid's like, I want to eat all the sugar. And you're like, go for it. We'll see how you feel afterwards. Sometimes we give them over to these things because it teaches a lesson that otherwise they won't listen to. Because ignorant experts are hard to educate. So what we have to get to is we have to begin to ask a new question. If, if, if Jesus truly is king within our life, we have to ask a new question. Here's what that question looks like. God, what do you want me to do about this? Like, what do you want me to do about this? Not what I want to do. What would you have me do? What is revealed in your creation? What is revealed in your word? What is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ? What is revealed in the order of the way you've made the world to work? What do you want me to do about this? What do you want me to do about my marriage? What do you want me to do about my career? What do you want me to do with my money? What do you want me to do with the position you've given to me? What do you want me to do with the injustice in the world around me? What do you want me to do about this? Like, God, if you are king, then I submit to you. So you tell me, and I'll follow. If we refuse to allow God to speak to it, then I would argue we are simply our own kings and queens in another's kingdom, committed to live our own way in opposition to the way that God has made the world to work and function. And if he's king, then we submit to him. But another really important aspect of this entire conversation comes down to this. It is not enough just to determine whether Jesus is your king or not. You have to also ask yourself, what kind of king do you believe for him to be? That is important. What image do you think of when you think about God? The brilliant late author and pastor A.W. Tozer said this, whatever comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Whatever image that comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And here's why. We are motivated to live and function and breathe and speak and treat people based upon that image. So if we see God as just some cosmically frustrated father that we can never please, if that's what we behold of him, that's what we reflect into the world. And if we see God as an aloof deity who could care less about us, then that's what we reflect into the world as well. That's the image that we reflect. If we see God as an unfair, unjust person, creator being, who is looking for us to trip up at some point in time so he can just punish us and smite us, then that is what we will reflect into the world. And the problem is, most of the kinds of images we have in our mind have come from broken mirrors and poor examples of who God actually is. That image must be restored. And the way God saw fit for it to be restored is by sending his son, Jesus. In human flesh, incarnation, partnership with his creation, God sends Jesus to make things right. So maybe this morning, the description I've just given you about what God is like, you're like, that's exactly what I think he's like. That's the example I got from my father. That's the example I got from my youth pastor, from my pastor, this church that was so harmful to me. You name it, we have these images. I would argue it's one of the reasons people are walking away from the faith in droves right now. They're walking away from images that aren't actually God, but they're images they have in their mind. And whatever we think about, when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The Bible says that Jesus is the, the image of the invisible God. You wanna know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. 
He's the full representation of who God is. He's the lens through which we must see everything. And the Bible says that when Jesus came from the Father, he came full of grace and truth. Which would mean this. When you spent time with Jesus, you knew exactly where you stood. When we read the scriptures, Jesus was not shy to say, listen, you should repent of this thing. Like, this is not gonna work anymore. It's time to turn. Jesus was truthful with people. They knew where they stood before God, where they stood before him. He was truthful with them. But he was also full of grace. He was graceful with them. So as he would tell the truth, he would also leave people feeling that they were loved beyond measure. That they were full of worth and value, no matter who they were or where they came from. What would happen if we began to reflect that kind of thing into the world? People who were truthful about God's intention for the world, his order for the world, and at the same time followed it up hand in hand, foot in foot, with the grace and love of the Father. That's what Jesus looks like. Restored images, image bearers of God, must become people who love people well and who are truthful with people. This summer, my oldest son got to go play basketball for a week at Ben Lippin for a basketball camp. And so it was a really hot week that summer. And so um, I was giving him Gatorade each day we'd leave. But one day I gave him two Gatorades. I'm like, listen, here's two Gatorades. It's very hot. You're gonna be there for a while. Make sure you drink both of them. Stay hydrated or die. So I gave him to him and he left. And he went to go play basketball. And I went to pick him up afterwards. And as we were driving home, I was talking with him. And I was like, hey, how'd it go? It was good. Um, we got in the car later on. Actually, my wife got him. I later on in the car with him. And I'm like, how'd it go? It was good. I had fun. I'm like, cool. And so how'd this go? It was awesome. I like the coaches. I'm like, well, did you drink your Gatorade? He said, yeah, I did. But I only drank one of them. I was like, why didn't you drink both of them? He said, well, there was a kid that came to camp and he didn't have anything to drink. And so I, so I gave him my other Gatorade so he can have something to drink. And he kind of looked off in the window and he's like, you know, I felt like a true miller today. I was like, whoa. Because for whatever reason, the image that we have portrayed to our son, I mean, please hear me, I am not the best father in the world. Much improvement could take place within my life. But there's something good that's happened if my son has picked up on what it means to be a miller as someone who is generous. And I started thinking about it. If I look at my family, the image I get from my family is people who are generous. And if I look at my grandparents, it's people who are generous. And it turns out, that's a tilted mirror that doesn't come from them. It comes from our Father. It comes from God. That a restored image bearer could become so generous that someone might look at that and say, if you follow Jesus and you live like that, then I want to follow God too. Because that looks really good to me. What would it look like for us to live under the rule and reign of God and partner with him in spreading his authority all over the earth through grace and truth and exemplifying all the attributes of who God is, even when it's hard, even when it's not popular, even when it runs perpendicular or directly at, is that perpendicular? When it rubs against one another within culture, I still think it's worth it. Because I would argue the only way that that this world is restored is through people who begin to wake up and begin to recognize my life could look like Jesus if I live in submission to him. 
So this morning, I wanna give two invitations today. I mean, here's the truth. We don't read the Bible for information. We read the Bible for transformation. We don't do any of this so that we could just be smarter or have more information in our head. We do this that God might change us. So I wanna give us an opportunity to respond to this. And the response would be exactly what John the Baptist said. If Jesus is king, then repentance is in order. A changing of mind, a changing of direction. So I'm gonna ask you to bow your head and pray with me in a moment. I'm gonna give you two invitations. I'm gonna tell you right up front. The first one is to see Jesus as our savior. I'm in need of restoration. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ is the way that happens, and I've received that into my life. Secondly, maybe beyond that is to receive Jesus as Lord, to submit to him in all aspects of your life. Let's pray together. God, first and foremost, I just want to confess that there is so much of my life that doesn't live underneath your authority and submitted to you, forgive me. God, I wanna repent of that. I wanna agree with you and I wanna live in line with your order in the world. I wanna live in line under your kingship. Forgive me for these lesser gods, these other images that we've traded you for. I pray across this room this morning, God, that you would awaken hearts to recognize if you are truly savior in their life, if you are truly Lord in their life. So this morning, with all heads bowed, I would invite you, if you want to say, Jesus, I recognize your saving grace for me. If you would like to be saved by Jesus this morning, I would invite you to stand right where you are boldly. Don't even care about anybody else around you. Just stand up so I can pray for you this morning. Be bold. If you would like Jesus to save you, to restore you, to redeem you, would you just stand where you are right now? Amen. Amen. God, I pray for these individuals right now who desire for you to save them, God, to rescue them. I pray, God, that in their hearts they would pray a prayer of repentance for forgiveness of sin and joyfully receive your grace and forgiveness. Thank you. Go ahead and have a seat. And this morning across this room, I don't know where you've come from. I don't know what your life is like. I don't know what gods or images you serve. But this morning, if you want to recognize Jesus as king in your life, authority in your life, would you stand so I can pray with you this morning? If you want Jesus to be the king of your life and to submit to him, would you stand up just boldly? Amen. Who cares about anybody else around? This is between you and God. You want to submit to him this morning. God, there's so many other things that vie for our attention and our allegiance. And this morning, Father, those who are standing right now, they wanna tell you that they want to submit to you. So God, would you lead them in a strong and powerful way? Would you speak to them through your word, through the person of Christ, through creation itself? Would you show them that you are worthy and trustworthy? And I pray, God, that you would use them to be a part of what you're doing in the world by spreading your rule and reign everywhere. Thank you for your grace and your love, God, to lead us so well. Amen. Have a seat. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your great love for us. I pray that we would leave here today, God, recognizing the opportunity that you give us to live under your leadership. I pray that Lexington would be transformed this year, God, because there would be people who would take you seriously. 
who would believe you and who would trust you, who would not exchange you for lies or find lesser gods to follow, but instead would live for you and ask the question, what do you want me to do about this? Would you lead us and guide us, Lord? We love you. And everyone together said,